Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Negative emissions technologies are a key part of the strategy to keep global warming to the two-degree target set out in the Paris Climate Agreement. In fact, it's projected that we'll need to remove dramatic quantities of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere each year to keep within the Paris goal. Yet today, negative emissions hardly exists in any practical sense, and major barriers lie ahead in the form of high costs, environmental impacts, and uncertain political support. On today's podcast, I'll be talking with the author of the very first textbook on carbon capture about the challenge of scaling negative emissions technologies to the point at which they can meaningfully limit carbon dioxide concentrations in Earth's atmosphere. Along the way, We'll look at how the challenge of scaling negative emissions recalls early barriers to growing the wind and solar industries. And we'll look at recent efforts to ramp up the deployment of negative emissions technologies. My guest is Jennifer Wilcox, professor of chemical engineering at Worcester Polytechnic Institute and a member of committees at the National Academies of Sciences and the American Physical Society charged with assessing carbon capture methods, their costs, and their climate impacts. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tell us about your work on negative emissions at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Sure. Uh, A lot of what we're working on uh, in my group is carbon capture, broadly speaking. Uh, So not just um, capture from the atmosphere, which would constitute as negative emissions, but also looking at avoiding carbon emissions to begin with. So carbon capture retrofits to existing technologies. Maybe it's a natural gas-fired power plant or um, a fluid catalytic cracker at a refinery. Uh, So we cover really broadly carbon capture uh, in general. And we focus in our group on adsorption and membrane-based separation processes uh, for CO2 more recently, Uh, focusing also on CO2 mineralization. Uh, And then finally, some of the work that we do in the group is is really about the techno-economic analysis coupled to life cycle assessment. Uh, Capturing CO2 from the atmosphere is actually something that um, is very difficult to do. And so part of the the systems-based thinking is what energy source are you using in order to remove CO2 from air? And then in the end, again, thinking about it as a system, what's the net removal of CO2 from air? After you're burning those fossil fuels, for example? Well, so if... No, um, it depends on if you're using fossil fuels to provide you with the the energy to actually do the direct air capture. And so, yes, if you're using natural gas-fired power plant um, to provide you with electricity to meet the electricity goals or needs of your separation process, then you have to think about um, the emissions from that power plant. And so if you design something that, for instance, captures a million tons of CO2 per year, depending on what the energy is that you're coupling to that direct air capture plant, your net removed is going to be lower if you're using fossil-based energy to fuel it. And so part of our group is very careful carbon accounting of the system uh, because in the end, the perspective that matters most is climate's perspective. So let's talk about this for a moment. What are the different negative emissions technologies? You just kind of introduced them briefly, but what are they and, and what are the types that are getting most attention right now? Sure. So, so uh, just a, a, just broadly going through them, um, there are biological uptake of CO2. So those include planting trees. It might also include um, enhancing uh, carbon storage in soils. Um, and also planting biomass such that the biomass can be used uh, for 
electricity production or energy production um, in place of fossil, um, like coal or natural gas. And so those are biological processes of removing CO2 from air. There's also mineral approaches. So using uh, alkaline-rich rocks, rocks that are rich in calcium and magnesium, which will react readily with CO2. Uh, Finally, uh, direct air capture is another method that uses chemicals that selectively react with CO2 um, in the atmosphere. So looking ahead at at, uh, negative emissions and its potential, how much carbon dioxide do we actually need to remove from the atmosphere each year, say, to meet the Paris goal's two-degree maximum warming limit? So last January 2019, uh, there was a report that was released by the National Academy of Sciences. And in that, it was estimated that 10 gigatons of CO2 in the form of negative emissions has to take place each year from now until mid-century. And then after, from 2050 to 2100, that would have to increase from 10 gigatons to 20 gigatons each year. And that's to meet our climate goals. And in the early stages, we, uh, in, I was a co-author of that study, and what we showed is that to achieve 10 gigatons of CO2 removal, we actually have the technologies today. And those technologies are at a cost of under $100 per ton of CO2. Uh, they are mostly in the form of uh, land-based um, options, so including afforestation, reforestation, or, or planting trees, uh, low tillage practices or agricultural practices that help keep carbon in soil and increase uh, the uptake of carbon in soils, and also land management approaches that could include um, using waste biomass, for instance, to turn it into a feedstock uh, for biomass-fueled facilities that produce electricity, for instance. What is biomass? Can you, in this context, can you explain that? So, for instance, biomass could be if if you have waste materials in a forest, um, that may be also a co-benefit, could be cleaning up forests to prevent uh, forest fires, for instance, And, and then collecting that biomass, it's just essentially dead trees and leaves and Um, you know, biomass that you would find uh, within forests. And the idea is is that can we take that biomass on site, convert it into a form that could be um, used, for instance, to replace coal and and a unit that burns coal. And this is a field in engineering called torrefaction. And that is, and you might be familiar with pellets and and, um, pellet stoves and things like that. So that's one way to think about it is turning biomass into these um, particles that look like the size of pulverized coal so that the burner technology that's used in coal-fired power plants today could be retrofit or updated to burn biomass instead. And in the Academy of Sciences report globally, we saw an opportunity or we presented an opportunity um, that there may be up to three to five gigatons of that kind of carbon removal potential in just biomass to electricity. Um, And again, adding up to 10 gigatons, we saw other sectors as well. Aforestation, reforestation, or planting trees is really just one of several options that are going to be required to add up to that scale. I'll add that what happens after mid-century? How do we get from 10 gigatons to 20 gigatons per year? How do we increase? It's our view, it was our view as a a committee in that report, uh, to look at also technologies like direct air capture and CO2 mineralization 
Today, direct air capture is still pretty expensive. Uh, mineralization still requires a lot of advanced research as well. So if we could get those kinds of technologies deployed, investigated further, the idea would be is maybe by mid-century we could get the costs down around $100 a ton, and they would play a larger and more significant role in the second half of the century. That's a really interesting point that you bring up. So it sounds like there's going to be a, a, a variety of different technologies and, and methods that we're going to be using. So um, negative emissions technologies are still quite new, right? Where do we stand today in terms of capacity, actual installed capacity for negative emissions? Sure. So there are projects that are getting started with biomass and uh, coupled to carbon capture and storage, also known as BECS, and a little bit of what I talked about before. Uh, and, and of course, there's practices, um, you know, in terms of low tillage and agricultural practices and reforestation, afforestation, but all of this is taking place on too small of a scale. Uh, in addition, when you think of technologies like bioenergy, coupled to carbon capture and storage, that second piece is extremely important. How are you going to actually permanently remove the CO2 that you're generating? Um, And same with direct air capture. Direct air capture in itself is a carbon removal method, but unless unless it's coupled to the permanent removal of the CO2, it's not negative. And so some of these technologies, you have to not just capture the CO2, but you have to permanently remove it. And then, then comes the, t- the, the question of what do, you, what do you do with that CO2? How do you remove it from the atmosphere um, on a timescale that impacts climate? And, uh, and today, uh, we are doing geologic storage of CO2, so putting CO2 back in the earth where it came from to begin with. Um, but we're mostly doing that through uh, a, a process called enhanced oil recovery. And so today, the amount of CO2 that's actually stored in the earth um, is on the order of about 40 million tons. And so if we're thinking back... That's what we're storing every year, 40 million tons. roughly 40 million tons of CO2. And we're talking total emissions in years, 40 gigatons. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we're 100 to 1,000 times off our, our target. Yeah, which, yeah. Gives we us have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you more about direct air capture. As you said earlier, a lot of your research is actually really focused on that, and that's actually removing carbon directly from the air. Uh, so, so you have to obviously do something with that carbon dioxide, as you just mentioned. It's a complex solution. It is at this point a very expensive solution, yet it holds a lot of promise. Can you tell me a little bit more what that promise is? Sure. I, you know, there are some benefits to direct air capture. Uh, the one, you know, I'll mention a few of them. One is is that uh, it's not tied to arable land, which means that if you have a direct air capture plant, it's not necessarily needs, it doesn't need to um, compete for food. Um, and so that's one of the, the drawbacks of biofuels is how much arable land is there to grow all of the biomass. Direct air capture doesn't suffer from that. Uh, Another aspect is, is, is the process is, is very efficient. Um, when you use chemicals to remove CO2 from air, it can be up to 100 times more efficient than um, a forest that takes up the same type of land area. Uh, so it's just an efficient process. Um, the other aspect is there's two technologies really that are driving this today. One is based on a, a liquid solvent approach, and another one is based on solid sorbents. And in particular, with the solid sorbents-based approach, which isn't that different from how your catalytic converter looks in your automobile. 
And so you have this honeycomb-type structure, um, and, and within that structure you have the chemistry, the chemistry that selectively reacts with CO2. So the air goes through the channels and CO2 um, is captured in the walls of, of that unit. And so to regenerate that material, which you need to do because it's, you know, we're talking gigatons. And so it means that anything you use, any chemistry you use, you need to be able to make it over and over and over again. And so it requires heat. But the heat required to regenerate those materials is, can be roughly 100 degrees C. You know, and, and there's a lot of opportunities. It's not that hot. It's actually not that bad. You know, it's like even even warm water, not quite boiling, could work. And so, with that in mind, there's a lot of um, opportunities out there in terms of low carbon heat, uh, like geothermal, for instance, um, that could couple well to that type of technology for direct air capture. One thing you have to be careful and this is part of the work that we're doing in my group, is responsible siting of, of these. You know, there's this concept that a direct air capture plant, you can put it anywhere. I would argue with that. It goes back to what we talked about before, which is the CO2 has to go somewhere, uh, and you don't want to necessarily spend a lot in the transportation of the CO2. The other piece is it requires a lot of energy to do direct air capture. To capture 1 million tons of CO2 per year can take anywhere from 300 to 500 uh, megawatt power plant. So it's a lot of energy. And depending on what the choice is of the energy can may lead to more emissions back into the atmosphere. So coupling to things like geothermal, but asking yourself first, is that geothermal not better spent replacing a coal-fired power plant? So as long as that low carbon energy resource is in an area where maybe there's not a population center or the energy couldn't be better suited to displace fossil in the first place. Um, the thing about geothermal in particular is that sometimes it's too low of a quality in terms of the working fluid. The temperature is not high enough to produce electricity. And so in those kinds of situations, direct air capture could couple well. Let's look at the economics of this for just a moment. So right now it's quite expensive. I've, I've read it's around $600 per ton or some of the estimates to remove a ton of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, how cheap does it need to be till it can start to create some critical mass for this technology where it can ramp up? Yeah, I, I think um, today there are some incentives in place. Uh, there's in the state of California something called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard that is trading up to about $200 per ton of CO2. Um, and so if the CO2, for instance, is used for enhanced oil recovery, uh, that qualifies uh, for that, that fuel standard. Um, there's also a federal tax credit called 45Q, which pays up to uh, $35 per ton of CO2 if the CO2 is used for enhanced oil recovery and up to $50 per ton if the CO2 is used for geologic storage. So if you look at, you know, EOR in particular, $200 plus 35 is 235 So the question is, you know, can we get direct air capture to be kind of lower than this number such that we can, you know, maybe close close the gap is the, is the, the goal. Um, today, it's true, Climeworks publicly says that it's about $600 per ton of CO2, but they also state that they have a path in the next five years of potentially getting down to $200 per ton. I think if we could get the cost down to $200 a ton, you know, in the next five to 10 years, that that would be, um, that could make some impact. And 
potentially, you know, if we can deploy on the millions of ton scale over the same time frame, maybe we could get as low as $100 by mid-century. And then these kinds of technologies would play a significant role in the second half of the century. So the situation with direct air capture and any negative emissions technology kind of recalls what happened in the early days of wind and solar. You had these technologies, had a lot of potential benefit, a lot of potential use, but the economics didn't really work out. So we're obviously trying to make those more and more economic at this point. There are a few projects, new projects that have been announced with direct air capture, one involving Occidental Petroleum out in Texas. that looks like it may be a way to actually start to scale up. Can you tell us more about what's going on out there? Sure. So Occidental uh, has partnered with Carbon Engineering, and they are uh, designing a plant to build in the Permian Basin in Texas that will remove on the order of a million tons of CO2 per year. Um, And what they ultimately uh, are doing with the CO2 is using it for enhanced oil recovery. So to give you a little bit of a background on what enhanced oil recovery is, first I'll say the first project uh, took place in the Permian Basin in Texas in 1972. Uh, and ultimately what you're doing is is it's called a tertiary recovery method. So already, you know, in, in the reservoir, the oil and gas reservoir, they've essentially recovered as much oil as they can. And now there's still this residual oil that they would like to st- still remove. The carbon dioxide in its supercritical form is a solvent. We use it for decaffeinating um, tea and coffee and other applications. But at the temperature and pressure conditions of the subsurface where the oil is, uh, it, it has properties that allow it to be miscible or mixing. It can easily mix with the oil. And in doing that, it changes the properties of the oil, its viscosity, its surface tension, its density, and it makes that oil easier to recover. And so what happens in one of these projects is that you have an injection well where you inject the the CO2 and then you have a production well. In the production well, uh, you're producing oil, but CO2 will also be produced. At the surface, you separate the CO2 and you re-inject it. And you keep re-injecting it to get as much oil out as you can out of that CO2 because today uh, oil operators are paying for the CO2 up to $40 per ton of CO2 is what they pay depending on what the price of oil is. And so because it costs something, they don't want to just leave it in the ground. They want to use it for enhancing oil recovery as much as they can. So they recycle it. So they're recycling it over and over again. And so um, that's basically uh, the process. But today, 84% of the CO2 is actually sourced from natural CO2 that's in the earth. So just like oil and gas has been stored in the earth for millions of years, there are reservoirs of high-purity CO2 um, in various regions, some in in Colorado and in other parts of, of the southwest and also in the Gulf Coast. And so pipeline infrastructure has been developed such that that natural CO2 can be brought to the enhanced oil recovery sites. So they're taking out CO2 from under the surface specifically to use it for, for EOR. For EOR. Yeah. Okay. So the first step would be to stop doing that, obviously, uh, and then to think about, well, where are there nearby anthropogenic sources of CO2? CO2 that um, that's, you know, produced from a power plant, for instance, that could be captured and transported to these sites. And so that 
you know, capturing CO2 from a point source is always going to be cheaper than capturing CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, these point sources are anywhere from 100 to 300 times more concentrated in CO2 than is in the atmosphere, uh, which really translates to, in the end to less energy required to do the separation and less capital um, also because that is really about the contactor of the unit and how much um, CO2 you're capturing. And so ultimately it would be the first step would really be to um, stop using natural CO2 for enhanced oil recovery and using anthropogenic CO2. And there will be some cases where maybe there's not enough anthropogenic CO2, in which case a company might use uh, direct air capture as well. The market for this today, so the how much CO2 is used for EOR in the U.S. every year, it's, it's roughly 70 million tons of CO2 that's used for EOR. And so, you know, Again, roughly 60 million tons is the runway we're looking at that we could imagine coupling to anthropogenic CO2 emissions instead of naturally sourcing it from the earth. So it's, it's an opportunity. So there's obviously a lot of potential there, but we're nowhere near the scale that we need at this point to actually make a, a difference for the climate. And this kind of recalls the, the situation we had once upon a time with wind and solar. High costs not a whole lot of it out there. We needed to ramp it up. How do we ramp it up in the case of direct air capture? Sure. So just taking solar or photovoltaics as an example, uh, and it's not clear whether that's the best model to compare to direct air capture. We can we can talk about that after. Um, but in its first significant decade of deployment, photovoltaics uh, increased by about 180 times in its first decade. A, r- a good rule of thumb for, you know, installed energy increases is typically a a factor of 10 over a decade. So that was significant. And there was a study that came out of um, MIT, I guess it was last December, that talked about that and how that happened, in that 60% of that increase was really due to government incentives uh, and policies that were in place for for that. And uh, only 40% were in the technological advances of photovoltaics. And so just looking at that model of growth, um, if we had that kind of growth with direct air capture, we would get to the gigaton scale that we need to um, by mid-century. I think enhanced oil recovery could be an interesting transition. But again, I mean, you know, if we look at that scale, right now the market is that there's 60 million tons. We're not doing a million tons of direct air capture globally at this point. It's on the order of of thousands of tons, that if you look at what Climeworks efforts have, uh, you know, uh, add up to. And so... Climeworks is a Swiss company involved in direct air capture. That's right. So Climeworks is a company out of Switzerland. They have 14 plants globally. And when you add up all of their efforts, it's on the order of thousands of tons of CO2 in terms of direct air capture. And and so it's it's still on the order of thousands of tons. We need to make the next step to get to millions of tons and then gigatons by mid-century. But... I also feel that with enhanced oil recovery, although it's, it is a transition, but it's not necessarily the right answer to couple to direct air capture for all cases. I think direct air capture will couple to some extent, but I also think we're, we're kind of missing a step. The first step would be to first avoid as much CO2 from entering the atmosphere to begin with. So again, if you look at you know all of the enhanced oil um, recovery opportunities in the Gulf Coast or in the Permian Basin, you 
first should look at those, you know, power plants or industrial emitters of CO2 and see if they're not most suited for doing it in the first place, like avoiding the carbon emissions to begin with, because those processes will always be um, lower in cost because they're more concentrated streams of CO2. But there may not be enough to satisfy the market that's needed, in which case direct air capture will play, you know, some some role in that. Um, but, I, but I wouldn't say that you would want to use that entire market just for direct air capture. Um, I, I think that ultimately, though, what are, what is going to scale to gigatons? We don't we don't know the answer of what we have to build, what we're going to need in order to really go from millions of tons to gigatons. But what we do know is there is enough geologic storage in the earth to put that CO two back in the earth. There's absolutely gigatons of storage in the earth in reliable formations that exist, and we know how to do that today, and we know how to do that because of all the experience we've had injecting CO2 in the subsurface through enhanced oil recovery, again with the first project in 1972. And each year, regardless of the fact that it's mostly naturally sourced CO2, the operators have experience injecting CO2 in the earth into these formations. And they're monitoring the leakage and verification of that storage every year since the start of these projects. So We've got about 50 decades of experience putting carbon dioxide in the earth in a safe way. So I think with all that experience um, will lend itself to transitioning from opportunities that are on the millions of ton scale in terms of EOR to gigaton scale. And gigaton scale is really just dedicated geologic storage projects. So you really emphasize the point of that we've got enough space underground to store all this carbon dioxide. And let me ask you an extremely naive question here, if I may. I have this image in my head that at some point in the future, we're going to have an earthquake, okay? And a big crack is going to open up in the ground, and all this carbon dioxide is going to escape out. I know it's not that simple. I know there's some chemistry behind that. But can you explain to me and to the listeners why that carbon dioxide, once it's in the ground, is going to be there permanently. And obviously this is an issue because one of the major concerns is, will this escape? And there's monitoring that has to go on of these sites, et cetera, to make sure the carbon dioxide doesn't get out. Why is it permanent? How does that work? Mm-hmm. So uh, again, leaning on the expertise and the, you know, the history of um, the enhanced oil recovery business, really, uh, those sites are fairly safe in terms of reliable, durable storage because they've been storing oil and gas for millions of years. And so typically there's either, you know, fault mechanisms or um, like so physical faults or even uh, low permeability cap rocks that have been keeping the oil and gas in even the natural sourced CO2 that I talked about in uh, the Rocky Mountains in the Colorado Basin. Um, They've been trapping these you know, these uh, fluids in the subsurface for millions of years. And so in those sites in particular, um, we understand how that storage took place. And we're simply, you know, to put it simply, taking oil out and putting carbon in. And these aren't just big open spaces no. underground where there's just a lot of carbon dioxide. It's actually mixed into the minerals, into the, in, in, into what, so, if you can explain that to Sure. Me. So a lot of, you know, the EOR projects, um, the, the formations are 
greater than 2,000 feet in the earth. So they're pretty deep. Um, and then the, the other part is, is that it's not like you have these large voids in the earth. These not are a cavern sandstones or carbonate rocks. And the pore spaces within these rocks are the sizes of the pore spaces are on the order of microns. Um, so like, you know, your hair, one, you know, one strand of your hair, very small pores. And they're dictated really by this, the grain size of the rock itself. And so it's all these little pores that have been storing oil and gas and have these trapping mechanisms. Um, and, you know, and the CO2 will be trapped by those same mechanisms. Now, not all formations that we could sequester CO2 in will be depleted oil and gas formations. Some may be saline aquifers, in which case more characterization and understanding of those systems needs to take place, which is why um, there should be more research in this field. It's not done because the earth is very um, you know, heterogeneous and these formations are different. And, uh, and some of the ones that we don't know as much about will need more characterization than the ones that we do know a lot about that have been storing oil and gas. One of the things that you've researched in the past that's very interesting is this concept of, st- of stacked storage and this being an opportunity to actually take existing oil and gas drilling and production sites and actually using multiple layers of the subsurface to actually store a whole lot of carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, what the opportunity may be and if there are any limitations? Sure. So... Um, so stack storage is, is really just how you just described it, where the formations in the earth are stratif- stratified. So there's these different layers. And, uh, and you could imagine that, you know, if you're an oil operator, um, that your focus is really about using CO2 to enhance the recovery of oil. But the formation doesn't just have pore spaces that have oil and gas, there's pore spaces maybe even at different layers in the earth, but within the same formation that have only salt water in them. And so if you have all the expertise in place and the human capital in place to drill, you know, wells um, that recover oil and inject CO2, you can also have wells that solely uh, inject CO2. One thing I'll say is that, you know, this then leads to the question of if I store more carbon in the earth than the equivalent carbon of the oil that I get out, you know, what does that mean? Is there such a thing as carbon neutral oil, for instance? Is that possible? With this approach, it could be possible. So if you, but, but keep in mind that it means that you have some dedicated storage of CO2 at that site as well. Just from a purely chemical physics perspective, one thing is true, is that if you have original oil in place and you simply want to displace that oil with supercritical CO2, the carbon atom density of supercritical CO2 will never be greater than the carbon atom density of the oil. It just, that's not the case. So in order to put more carbon in the ground, than carbon that you get out. And by the way, what does that even mean, carbon you get out? There's energy associated with recovering the oil. You have to refine it. That takes energy. You have to transport it. That takes energy in subsequent carbon emissions. And oh, by the way, what do we do with oil today? We burn it and we put the CO2 back in the air. So all that carbon has to be added up 
And in order for that oil to have a neutral footprint, you need to put more carbon than that back in the earth. And you say you can't put that carbon back into the same space and it, it exceeds the, the amount space. that you took That's out. That's right. That's right. So there needs to be pore space in the subsurface dedicated for CO2, not for oil. That would be the stacked storage? Yeah, that, that could be stacked storage as a, as a way to think about that. And then there's the question, what about legacy emissions? So remember, we, we talk about CO2 EOR as being a tertiary method of recovery. But the primary method is drilling a, a well and getting oil out of the ground. But at some point, you know, you have to pressurize the system to push more oil out. So secondary approaches are like water flooding, for instance, or thermal approaches to get more oil out. And so CO2 EOR typically is taking place pretty late in the project, right? So you've already, that formation has already produced a lot of oil. One thing I think would be interesting is to look at if energy companies could kind of quantify what are the historical emissions associated with that formation and what would it take to offset those historical emissions. You know, so many people say, oh, it's the energy company's fault. You know, I, and it's like, well, it's everybody's fault. You know, we make decisions too, right, day to day. And it's like, well, imagine, sure, if they were part of the problem, they could also be part of the solution, right? And so through something like stack storage, we could, we could actually potentially um, capture historical emissions at a given formation as well, which I think would be interesting. Jennifer, what's your take on the recent proposal from Republicans in the House of Representatives to plant uh, a trillion trees to address climate change and remove uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? Is this realistic? Well, so, so it's going to be going back to there's going to be a, it's a portfolio. Uh, planting trees is is one aspect of a broad range of of solutions that we need to tackle, that we need to do all of the above. Um, so just to reiterate, uh, you know, there's storage in planting biomass, for instance, and using that to displace coal-fired power plants with biomass energy coupled to carbon capture and storage. There's direct air capture, of course. There's mineralization of CO2. Like all of these things need to play a role. And, and the other thing that we've noticed, too, is recently that some of these sinks are are becoming sources of CO2. And we've seen that, for instance, in the bushfires in Australia um, uh, and also in the California fires, too. And so relying on just one, you know, option and uh, I think is is a gamble, you know, and a safer bet is putting a little bit of investment and deployment in each of these things. There's not one, there's not one answer, uh, and that's why it's so difficult. Some corporations have come out in the last few weeks uh, with some pretty bold pledges to go carbon neutral or carbon negative using some of these technologies and solutions that we've spoken about. What's your feeling about those? Yeah, it's amazing. I hope it's real. So a lot of companies um, are talking about, most are actually talking about achieving carbon neutrality by a certain time frame. Um, I think Microsoft is really the one that's also talking about uh, dealing with its legacy emissions. Um, so one thing we have to keep in mind is is that even if your aim is to go carbon neutral, it's hard. So you have to really think about, well, 
what does that mean? If you're an airline and you want to go uh, carbon neutral, for instance, are you only talking about the supply chain? For instance, the fuel? That's a different story. You're, you want carbon neutral fuel and that's your goal. But what about all the other aspects that go into that industry? You know, and, and, and drawing the box a little bit bigger in terms of the responsibility of the emissions associated with that. There are sectors that are just very, very difficult to avoid. Um, and transportation fuel is one of them. And biofuels are only going to play so much of a, of a role because they do compete uh, with land for, for food production. And so we have to really ask this question of, of what is it going to take to be carbon neutral. And in the, in the sectors that are difficult to avoid, that's when negative emissions will probably start to play uh, a more significant role. Of course, a company like Microsoft, who's pledging to also um, negate legacy emissions, there's going to have to be negative emissions projects taking place in order to deal with past emissions, historical emissions. But even now, in companies that are pledging to just go neutral, there are parts of their, um, you know, whether it's energy, whether it's liquid fuels, that are really difficult, or even the embodied emissions in materials, the infrastructure of iron and steel and cement. All of these emissions are very, very difficult to avoid. And that's where uh, negative emissions could also have impact and play a role. But we need to be able to get these, these projects deployed uh, so that we can learn by doing and hopefully decrease costs and deploy more to get to the scale we need to. It sounds like that's the real real key right there, right? Scaling it and doing what we need at this point to make that happen. Exactly. Jennifer, thanks for talking. Thanks for having me. Today's guest has been Jennifer Wilcox, Professor of Chemical Engineering at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. For more energy policy insights and news, visit the Climate Center for Energy Policy's website. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. And get notified of the latest research and podcasts from the center by subscribing to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 